we continue our journey through the book of Romans, and we've made it to chapter 4. What do you know? Um, it's exciting. This is, this is, I hope this has been a refreshing and edifying time for you, just looking at God's truth in the book of Romans. This morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 in chapter 4. What shall we, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for just the beautiful description of redemption and of justification um, that you were doing, not just since Jesus came, but even before that. We pray that you would quicken our hearts to be attentive to these things, God, that we might find true spiritual nourishment and edification uh, as we think about these matters, especially in relation to our own lives and our relationship with you and our walk with you. God, help me to speak clearly, and Lord, may all of our hearts be attentive to what the Spirit has to say to his church this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, so said the American astronomer and popular agnostic or skeptic Carl Sagan. Mr. Sagan said he wasn't necessarily an atheist, but that he nevertheless did not think there was adequate evidence out there in the cosmos to lead one to believe that God existed. In his writings, though, he also believed that the most scientifically advanced people were those who rejected religion. So I think we kind of get an idea of where he actually stood on the matter. But while we may reject Sagan's conclusions about religion, especially after we consider the great evidence of God in creation and in conscience, which we've already looked at, we can still resonate with a little bit of what he said about the demand 
for evidence. We, as a people, often demand evidence from others, especially when what someone puts forward as true contradicts a closely held belief. Parents, if your children claim that they have done their homework, even though all they have been doing since they got home from school was either sitting in front of the TV or on their phone, you might call into question that claim that their homework has been completed. If someone tells you it's actually unhealthy to eat ice cream six nights a week, you're not going to accept that on blind faith, are you? You're going to want some evidence for that claim. No one likes having the wool put over their eyes. And here in Romans, Paul was contradicting and subverting deeply cherished beliefs his Jewish contemporaries would have held. Namely, that acceptance with God did ultimately depend on faithfulness to the law. This was sort of the teaching that was just in the air in Judaism. Back in the first century, we still see it today. But Paul's contradicting that. So in chapter 4, he anticipates the heat and he brings up uh, two people from the Old Testament in order to sort of fortify and show the truthfulness of his doctrine. And in order to do that, he brings up two folks that would have certainly gotten the Jews' attention. He brings up Abraham and he brings up David. And so this morning we're going to talk about justification and the life of Abraham. We're going to talk about justification in the life of David, and then justification in the life of the believer. And in that third point, we're really going to look at some application um, of the apostles' teaching. So what about Abraham, Father Abraham, right? He says that, uh, our our forefather according to the flesh. Abraham was a moral and religious hero for adherence of Judaism. I mean, we as Christians also hold him in a high regard as well, but religious Jews would see Abraham's obedience to God's call, his obedience to sacrifice his son Isaac, his heroic venture to rescue his nephew Lot, all as works which commended him in God's sight. He was, after all, the father of circumcision. It was to Abraham that the sign and seal of circumcision was given to. And so highly regarded was Abraham by ancient Jews that in Jesus' time, he was having to deal with folks who believed that a bare ethnic association with Abraham was enough to get them into the kingdom. In Matthew 3, Jesus says, "'You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come?' Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So there must have been some kind of teaching going around where folks could just presume upon being associated with Abraham as a ticket to heaven. All of that to say Abraham was highly regarded. So we can ask, did Abraham have something to boast about? You know, this is, this is a question that the text raises. Did he have something to boast about? Now, if we, we were using merely human metrics to determine righteousness, I think we'd have a case. But what does the word of God say? Did Abraham's righteous acts lead to his righteous status before God? See in verse 3 how the apostle answers this question. 
For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And simple as it may sound, simple as this verse might be, this was explosive. It was huge for Paul's purposes here in Romans 4 for a few reasons. First, in Paul's day, the blessing of justification was being tied very closely to circumcision, or to kind of bring it up to speed to our day, it was being tied to religious observance. And this is why the location of this passage in Genesis is very, very important. God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17, uh, but this verse that we find Paul quoting wasn't found in Genesis 17, but is found rather in Genesis 15, which means that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, which consequently means that one's justification has nothing to do with one's observance of certain ordinances of, of God, certain ceremonies, you know, maybe circumcision or today we could say baptism. Not to say that circumcision and baptism are unimportant, but they aren't the same thing as, you know, uh, acceptance with God. So the first thing that's important is that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. So circumcision could not be, religious observance could not be the path to eternal life. Then secondly, this passage teaches us that Abraham was justified, not by keeping the law, but by exercising faith in the promises of God. He was saved by faith and by faith, or through faith and through faith alone. So Abraham's legacy wasn't necessarily that he was obedient. I mean, he was obedient, but really his legacy, according to the New Testament, was that he was a man of faith. He exercised faith in the promises of God concerning the coming Messiah. And when you look closer at Abraham's life, you realize that even he needed God's grace. Even he needed God's grace. He's, he's, I think in Judaism, he was sort of hyped up as a hero. Um, after Jesus' day, this apocryphal sort of uh, Jewish literature, the Testament of Abraham, there's even an account of Abraham before he was called um, out of his land and his family, which was idolatrous. There's this account of him, you know, seeing his father's idols and destroying them and crushing them into a bunch of pieces and kind of him getting into trouble uh, for that. But there's an attempt to kind of uh, say that Abraham, even before he was called, he was this religious genius. He had these strong religious impulses to follow Yahweh. But when you actually look at the text, uh, that's not necessarily what you see. Abraham needed God's grace on two separate occasions. As we know, he lied about Sarah, his wife, telling others that he was his sister. And he also encouraged Sarah to be deceptive in the same way. And he went along with his wife's sinful plan to impregnate Hagar, her servant, rather than waiting for God's promise concerning a promised child to come to fulfillment. Abraham had clay feet just like you and I. Abraham did not have anything to boast about. But we have to admit that Abraham's justification did include righteousness. You're not justified without a righteousness. It's just that 
this righteousness wasn't Abraham's righteousness. And this is where we need to pay careful attention to the text of Scripture. Notice the word counted in our chapter, in our section of this chapter, in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, and 11. The mere repetition should grab our attention. And the word in the New Testament, it's kind of funny in the Greek, logizomai, logizomai. Uh, you maybe need a name for a dog or a cat, logizomai. But the word in the New Testament has the sense of uh, to reckon or to credit or to place to one's account. Sometimes the word imputation is also used, and this gets to the heart of justification and of the gospel. In justification, God freely credits to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he credits it to us by faith alone. Even our faith is not meritorious. It's merely instrumental in this process. It is with an empty, it is with an empty and impoverished hand that we receive the riches of Jesus Christ. Now, I need to clarify um, some things, there's a lot about what the, the Reformation was about. When we talk about justification, we're not talking about receiving an ethical righteousness, right? Uh, we're not talking about God infusing new moral qualities into our souls so that we do more and more righteous things, you know, love our neighbor a little bit more. You know, that's, that's not what justification is about. That's what sanctification is about. We'll get to that in chapter 6, but right now he's talking about justification. Justification has more of a forensic or a legal shade of meaning to it. So it means that the good works of Jesus, his perfect fulfillment of the law, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, all of the value and merit of that work gets put into our bank account, so to speak, so that our debt is fully paid and we are truly righteous in God's sight. We appear before the court of heaven, not wearing our own filthy rags, but rather wearing the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. Christ receives all of our sin, and we receive all of his righteousness. And I want to bring up a quote from Luther. He was especially dead on when it came to justification. Um, this is what he said about this passage. Or this is what he said about justification. This is that mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins are no longer ours but Christ's, and the righteousness of Christ, not Christ's, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it, and he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. In the same manner as he grieved and suffered in our sins and was confounded, in the same manner we rejoice and glory in his righteousness. This is the pure and unadulterated gospel. This is the same gospel that Abraham knew and exercised faith in, though in a limited way. And so Abraham is to us a pattern for New Testament Christians on how we might be reconciled to God by exercising faith in the promises of God. Abraham knew about it, and Abraham is the pattern of it. 
So enough about Abraham, though Abraham kind of fills up the bulk of this passage and next week, as we'll see in the rest of chapter 4, if we do get to the end of chapter 4, it's all about Abraham and how he illustrates God's grace in his life. But now we want to talk about justification in the life of David. So moving on in our passage to verses 4 and 5, we notice these comments about the relation between work and reward. If you work, you receive your wages as your due because it's what you've earned. But justification doesn't work like that, neither for Abraham nor for New Covenant Christians. Instead, one doesn't work for wages of eternal life, but simply believes, believes that they stand in need of God's grace and believes that God gives this righteousness to believers as a free gift. This is how justification comes to us now. And King David in the Old Testament believed this same exact thing. And we have evidence of this in Psalm 32, the same psalm which we sung this morning after our profession of faith. Now, like Abraham, David was exemplary in many respects. Scripture identifies him as a man after God's own heart. He's responsible for most of the Psalms in the book of Psalms that we have, which we use in our devotional life, which we use in preaching, which we use in worship. And he was a type of Christ, foreshadowing the righteous king who would come in the fullness of time to destroy the enemies of God and the enemies of the people of God and who would exercise a just and righteous reign over his people. But, right, as we know, David also made all kinds of sinful mistakes in his life. Um, some of the main ones pointed out in the Bible are that his um, adulterous affair with Bathsheba and him also uh, letting Uriah... Um, or uh, Bathsheba's husband, kind of hanging him out to dry on the battlefront. So, while David might be heroic in some regards, he, if he is going to be justified, needs to be justified by God's grace because he is a great sinner. And we have some evidence that he realized that in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Notice, blessedness does not consist in riches or luxury or worldly assurances, but in the forgiveness of sin. Sometimes we need to, to remind ourselves of that. You know, I think a lot of times, you know, even myself personally, we get really hyped up and excited, even obsessed about certain worldly things as if that was the you know the one thing that mattered the one thing needful what is the one thing needful according to david but the forgiveness of our sins true happiness in other words is grounded in god's gracious removal of our sin true joy is anchored in god's covering over our sin never to be unearthed ever again and true blessedness belongs to those who will not have their sins counted against them. To be cursed is to have to pay for your sins on the last day. But to be blessed is to have those same sins abolished through justification, even now in this life. 
And David was at this point, as we know, he was already a believer, but he was holding on to unconfessed sin. His strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, the psalm says, but he finds relief in confessing his sin and by remembering his justification. A lot of times we hear the word or the phrase, remember your baptism. Well, David's telling us, Remember your justification. Christian, when you're in a time of spiritual desperation, when your spiritual wells are dry, when you're getting beat up by the reminder of remaining sin, remember your justification. Remember your acceptance with God isn't found in your righteousness, but in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, and that through faith you are truly a recipient of that righteousness. If, if we would have peace of conscience, in other words, then we must look no further than to the Prince of Peace. So Abraham illustrates that justification by faith is legit. We could say it's something taught in Scripture. So contemporary Jews in the first century should not have an issue with it. David also teaches that justification by faith is the truth. It's been around for a long time. He emphasizes the forgiveness of sins, that our sins aren't counted against us. But now we want to take a moment and look at justification in the life of the believer. I think God is trying to tell us something here. We know, after all, that the Almighty does not waste His breath. We know that. And I think the doctrine of justification by faith is meant to urge us forward in our Christian life for a few reasons, a smattering of reasons here as we conclude. To begin with, when we consider the weightier matters of life and of eternity and of our relationship with God, we must remember the absolute necessity of faith. The absolute necessity of faith over and over and over again. It's been emphasized by the word of God that if we would be united to Christ and enjoy and enjoy the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, we must exercise faith. And if you are unsure if you have exercised faith in Christ, then take a moment to soberly and prayerfully consider your condition. Do you recognize your sin before God? Have you trusted in God's Son as your only hope for salvation? Do not go another moment without having considered these things. Eternity awaits us all. And eternity is a long time. And relatedly, if you do believe but have doubts concerning your faith because of an ongoing struggle with sin, be assured that no sin is so great that the blood of Christ cannot cover it. His grace is sufficient for you. But this also means that we should be watchful over and protective of our faith to prevent it from stumbling into error and from being corrupted. Our faith is precious in false doctrine, which could be something we get out of a book, something we hear in the hallways of school, something we hear on the radio, something we see on social media. This false doctrine and false living, these things have a way of hindering our assurance, uh, hindering our feelings of assurance before God. When we get ourselves mixed up with 
false teaching about you know, who God is or how we are right with God or when we are walking out of step with God's will, it has a, a way of, sort of disconnecting our, you know, sort of the warmth of our relationship with God and things can run cold and we can feel you know, maybe distant from God or separated from God. Uh, these kinds of things can disturb our faith, which is, another, which is a reason why we need to be watchful over it. Just as Solomon tells us in Proverbs 4, to keep our hearts with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life, so too we should keep watch over our faith with all vigilance. If we put forth effort to protect our cars from theft and our clothes from stains, how much more should we strive to guard our faith from being stolen or stained by the corrupting influences of Satan and the world? Something to remember this week. If we put you know, great value in these lesser things, how much more should we put value and heart in these things that have eternal import? Another application, run from legalism. And if you're involved in it, turn from legalism. Legalism teaches the lie that our obedience earns us more and more of God's favor. And it could be subtle. Maybe putting too much confidence in, you know, maybe your daily devotions or in your church attendance or in having kind of all the right doctrine, right? Doctrine is important, but it can also become an idol. Um, things that might otherwise be good can be elevated in such a way that they take the place of Jesus. Salvation, in other words, is not Jesus plus, you know, doing X, Y, and Z. You know, it's, it's Jesus alone. But this way of thinking, this legalism, as a way of eclipsing the glory of justification and robbing us of peace. Instead, we should keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, looking to him alone for God's favor. But there's, a, there's another side of this coin, right? We should also run from and keep ourselves from the false teaching known as antinomianism. Lots of syllables, antinomianism, which is a way of thinking that says, because Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, and he has, uh, this way of thinking says that because he's done that, that we need not pay any attention to God's law, that there are no kind of moral standards that we need to adhere to because, right, all has been paid for, all is grace, so, you know, eat and drink, um, do whatever you want because God's got it covered. May it never be. Though we are justified apart from our works, we know that everyone that God justifies, he also sanctifies. And so good works are, should be a matter of our concern. And if you want to look at this a little bit further, then see James 2, the second half of James 2, where he talks about that while Abraham was justified you know, by faith alone, his faith was not a dead faith without works, but that it was a living faith. And it evidenced itself through holy service to God, you know, through loving one's neighbor, through turning from sin, through you know, honoring one's father and mother, through honesty and, and truthful speaking. Besides that, we know that we are the friends of God. And knowing that we are the friend of God and not his enemy, knowing that in the court of heaven we have been, we have been found righteous and free, 
not guilty and condemned, should motivate us to live for God and not for ourselves. God has forgiven us much, so let us be those who love much. Let us love God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us love him for who he is, but also for the pity that he has taken upon us, forgiving us and renewing us, making us whole. And let us also love those in our lives in the same way that Jesus has loved us. You know, there is something to the, the phrase, you know, what would Jesus do? Um, Jesus has loved us greatly and supremely. And it's something that we didn't earn. It's something we can't pay back. Uh, but it's, you know, we can walk in gratitude. And I want to close with a passage from Ephesians 4 that explicitly tells us how we should love others. And also, it also describes how this love springs out of a love for Jesus. All of our sort of ethical living, all of our good works, they always flow out of the redemption that we have in Jesus. They always flow out of our justification. The apostle says in Ephesians 4, and we close with this verse, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. God has forgiven you. If you have believed in him, if you have trusted in him, you are justified. And so let us walk toward let us walk in kindness towards others. Let us be tender-hearted. Let us be forgiving towards one another, even if we think they are undeserving. We are undeserving, and God forgave us. Let us forgive and love those around us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the example of faith that we have in uh, Abraham, which we have in David as well. We thank you that you are a consistent God, that you have not decided one day that we be saved by works and another day that we be saved by grace. But these are the ancient and true paths to come to you through faith in your promises, through faith in your Son. And we thank you that your Son has provided a righteousness through his perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We pray that we would be a people defined by that gospel. And we pray that we would be a people who live out of that gospel. Grant us all tender hearts. God, give us excellent spirits. Help us to be patient and forgiving towards others today and this week, all because Jesus has been patient and loving and forgiving towards us. We ask these things in his name. Amen.